Looking for health info? This is Health U's House Call, part of Hackensack Meridian Health's podcast. We're here to provide you with the tools and resources to make informed decisions about your health. Here, our expert providers will provide you with wellness tips, information, and general health advice. This is House Call. Across the globe, more than 3 billion people play video games, including 214 million in the U.S. The World Health Organization reports that up to 3% of people who play video games have a video game addiction. Video games have come a long way since their inception, captivating players with immersive worlds, challenging quests, and adrenaline-pumping action. As with any form of entertainment, moderation is key. Today, we're going to delve into the addictive aspects of gaming, what it looks like from the outside, and how you can help. So, whether you're a passionate gamer yourself, a concerned parent, or simply curious about gaming addiction, this episode is for you. Joining me on this journey is Dr. James Scherer, an addiction psychiatrist and avid gamer. Thanks so much, Dr. Scherer, for being with us. We're so glad you could come in and share. It's my absolute pleasure to be here. Thank you for uh, inviting me. Awesome. Thanks so much. I know this is a topic that's close to your heart, being an addiction psychiatrist and also a gamer. So why don't we start? Can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and your journey in, in gaming and then also in your medical career? Sure. Yeah. So I, I'm an addiction psychiatrist by training. Um, and I think most relevant to this topic, um, I am, as you said, an avid gamer. Uh, my gaming journey began when one of my best friends growing up had a Nintendo Entertainment System, and uh, I was so jealous of him. And we would spend hours and hours and hours playing Super Mario Brothers, Bucky O'Hare on his Nintendo Entertainment System. And I begged and begged my parents, please, can you get me one of these? And it slowly over the years, um, I chipped away and they, they gave in. Um, they didn't want to. Um, but they gave in. And what did they buy me? They bought me uh, the Super Nintendo. Now, this was the newer, better one. Uh, and they thought they were doing me a big favor. And uh, they weren't because I didn't know what it was. So uh, no. I, I opened it up Christmas morning and I started crying. And they said, what's wrong? We, we got you the Nintendo. And I said, well, no, this isn't the one that my friend has. Aww. So, uh, but uh, that's, really, that's really where it all began. That's and a memory that will stick with you. And I'm sure your parents forever. They're like, best parent award. And you're like, how could you? And I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure if they're listening to this, I'm sure they're not happy that I'm rehashing it again. But <laughs> Over and over, rip the band-aid again and again. <laughs> that's funny, though, because, I mean, it just also shows, like, the times like you were aware of the gaming system because of your friend people now are like oh there's a new game out because it's across the internet and like everybody knows exactly yeah and i'm old with you so super (laughs) nintendo the goods oh yeah the the classic stuff but you're right um kids don't need to go home turn on a system that's plugged into a television anymore to play video games they can access them from anywhere and everywhere uh, and they do. They access them while they're at school, and they should be um, doing schoolwork on the laptops that the school provides. The school may even put some uh, software on there to prevent the kids from accessing social media and playing video games during the school day. But kids are smart, and they get around that. Uh, so, yeah, you can't cut the cord anymore. And that, I think, is uh, a source of consternation for many of the parents that I meet. Um, there is no simple solution. 
And, you know, along those lines, um, you know, I'm sure we'll talk about, you know, what we can do to help kids who may have a video game addiction. But one thing that doesn't have great evidence, at least not yet, are things like boot camps, rehabs, because as I said, and as you're pointing out, you can't cut the cords. So sure, you can take the games away for a period of time, but eventually that child has to leave the boot camp, has to leave that rehab, has to leave that structured environment, go back home, and is going to need access to a phone or a computer to, you know, do, do their life. schoolwork. Yeah. yeah. And so what are you going to do when they, when they have that access again? And I think that's, the, that's one of the big issues that we're running into. Yeah. yeah. Well, let's start with fun. Um, what is your favorite game? My favorite game? Oh, my goodness. This is um, a very difficult question. <laughs> a very be, emotional okay, question. Okay, let's do favorite game as a child and then favorite game now. My favorite game as a child was probably Donkey Kong Country on the Super Nintendo. Loved it. It was great. Oh, excellent soundtrack, excellent gameplay. And my favorite game now is probably... Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild came out in 2017, just had a sequel released last Friday, Legend of Zelda Tears of the Kingdom, which I have been playing, and it's incredible, a wonderful experience, and everyone should be playing it, including you. And, uh, <laughs> Noted. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, quite, it's quite therapeutic in, a, in and of itself. Nice. Yeah. All right. Well, that's very cool. I'm glad to hear about, you know, where you started in gaming, where you are now, Um do you want to share a little bit about just like your gaming history? I know you've mentioned just, you know, having, I guess, an addiction to it. Do you mind sharing that with us? Sure. So, um, you know, I think that talking about any addiction is a really nuanced exercise. I think that when we talk about addiction, we're really talking about self-medicating. And in my case, what I was probably self-medicating was garden variety, childhood and young adult anxiety and depression. And, um, you know, back in the 90s and noughts, uh, there was still, there is to this day, but back then especially, there was this huge stigma around mental health and, uh, you know, access to these resources was fairly limited. Um, and I didn't even necessarily know that's what I was experiencing. All I knew was that I felt a certain way and that when I played games, I felt better. Mm -hmm. And, you know, just like my patients who maybe struggle with more chemical dependencies like cocaine and heroin and fentanyl, you know, it's the same deal. They're going through something difficult, a trauma, a bump in the road in terms of their life, and they turn to something that's available and effective in terms of treating their underlying depression, anxiety, trauma, so on and so forth. So I think when I was a kid, I started to realize that Donkey Kong Country, other games on the Super Nintendo were like my go-to rough day at school, undiagnosed ADHD, undiagnosed dyslexia until I was in medical school. Uh, so school was very difficult for me, an uphill battle every step of the way. So I would kind of go to school, struggle, hit my head against the wall, not literally, you know, figuratively, come home and kind of like, you know, work it out with, with video games. Um, and that continued into... Um, my teens and college. And I would say during college, that's probably when I would have met the criteria as outlined in the DSM-5 for internet gaming disorder, which is the fancy way that we psychiatrists talk about 
a video game addiction. Mm-hmm. Um, and that game was World of Warcraft, which is a massively multiplayer online RPG, millions of players uh, playing simultaneously on servers, um, huge community aspect to it. But games like World of Warcraft are designed so that you can sink as many hours as you'd like into them. If you want to spend 12 to 16 hours a day playing an MMORPG like World of Warcraft or Final Fantasy XIV or EverQuest, you can easily. Um, And uh, I would say there were certainly times during college, again, I was struggling with these undiagnosed things, um, that that I really turned to World of Warcraft as kind of this um, pressure release valve. And uh, there were certainly times when I kind of approached it like my job, you know, I I prioritized it above my social life, my studies. Um, You know, luckily for me, I never fell down that rabbit hole so far that um, my studies or my personal life were ever really compromised in a way that I couldn't repair. But I certainly have friends who that was the case for and who spent years struggling and trying to cut down and not being able to. And that really is the the definition of an addiction. It's when it crosses over, it becomes, it goes from something that you enjoy doing to something you don't enjoy doing, but you have to do. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's that's really what we're talking about here. Yeah. So I guess at what at what point did you, was there like a turning point where you said, hey, you know, like I'm gaming too much, I, I should stop? No. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, I'm gaming right now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> You know, again, because I I didn't have the language or the knowledge to understand what I was going through. Um, I didn't think there was anything wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, I just knew that I felt a certain way. And then when I played video games, I didn't feel that way anymore. Um, and I think that's a big difference between then and now. I think nowadays just the general knowledge about mental health among your average American citizen, your average American teenager is so much higher. I mean, we have teenagers on TikTok talking openly about ADHD, talking openly about things that are difficult for me as a psychiatrist to wrap my head around, like narcissistic personality disorder. And so I think kids finally are equipped with the language and the knowledge base to identify when they might be struggling in a way that maybe they might need the help of a mental health professional. Um, but I didn't know there was uh, I didn't know there was anything wrong. Um, and, uh, and the other thing, and this goes for cannabis and lots of other, uh, substances as well. Everyone around me was doing it too. Yeah. Everyone around me was, uh, was playing world of Warcraft for 12 or 16 hours a day. Right. And so it's very easy to normalize that when you uh when you see everyone else doing it and it seems okay i'm just doing the same thing everyone else is doing so it never i guess like you said it never got to like a breaking point where you were just like it just kind of normalized and luckily for me i think that um and you know i'm i'm also very open about my my adhd uh luckily for me i think adhd oddly was a bit of a saving grace because the thing with ADHD is, especially adult ADHD, is that it's not an inability to pay attention, as uh, my friend and co-host on my other podcast, I don't know if I can mention that here. Yeah, maybe. plug away. Okay. <laughs> the Psychiatrist Guide, find on 
uh, iTunes and wherever else you can find podcasts. Um, as Dr. Koira, my friend and colleague, says, ADHD is not an inability to pay attention. It's an inability to regulate attention. Um, but if you find something that you're really interested in as, as a person with ADHD, you can funnel as much time and energy as you want into that thing. And luckily, um, I found a major that I, I loved. I was an English major of all things. I'm, I'm an English major with a concentration in British literature and poetry before 1800. Um, I don't know how I got to be a doctor. But <laughs> See, this is why I'm glad I'm asking these questions because that is amazing. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, so I, but I, uh, but I really loved it. I loved it. Um, I was at NYU. I was studying that. I fell in love with it. I fell in love with spending nights in the library, and so that kind of became an addiction in and of itself, and it kind of, you know, put the World of Warcraft in the rearview mirror at least for the time being. And, um, you know, fast forward, now I'm here. Now I think finally I, and like I'm saying, a lot of people are equipped with the knowledge of what an addiction is, what it looks like. And I think a lot of people can know when they need help and they, and they know that there are resources out there now, luckily. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned that before. I think that's one of the beauties of, you know, social media. And we just are exposed to so much more in people's personal stories that you would have never known you know, quote, quote, back in the day. Um, So there's good and bad. I guess it's you're exposed to a lot more in a good way, but could also be in a negative way. But resource is definitely out there now. Definitely. Um, So I don't want to be so clinical about it, but what would you describe as like, what is video game addiction? Is there like a set boundary to say, you know, if you do X, Y, and Z, that means you're addicted? No, no. And, you know, the thing I should say is that, yes, this is in the Bible of Psychiatry, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, the DSM-5, but it is in the back of the DSM-5 in the section labeled Requiring Further Research. Um, So this is a proposed diagnosis. Um, And it's so it's not finalized. And it's even competing with other diagnoses that we have. For example, the ICD, the International Classification of Diseases, they have a separate term that they use called gaming disorder. So it's a very confusing time both for parents and for mental health professionals trying to wrap their head around this and understand what the criteria are. Um, That's a long way of saying, no, I don't think that we have this, like, I don't think we have the definition locked tight yet. Um, I think it's typified by a lot of the things that typify every addiction. Cravings, so cravings to um, play games when they're not available, cravings to play games more and more to get the same level of satisfaction that you used to get. Um, You know, needing to play two hours to feel that same level of, to get that same dopamine squirt in your brain that you used to get in one hour. And then a couple months later needing to play four hours and then a couple months later, needing to play 10 hours. That kind of thing is also called tolerance. That's another um, sign of any addiction. Um, uh, and then uh, withdrawal symptoms. So uh, when we're talking about uh, video games, we're usually talking about emotional withdrawal symptoms, right? If you withdraw from a substance like alcohol, there will be overt physical symptoms that I, as an addiction psychiatrist, can look at someone even on a plane and just say, that guy's withdrawing from alcohol, and two hours into this plane ride, we're going to have a problem, um, unless he 
gets a drink, <laughs> I guess. Drink. <laughs> but with gaming, it's different. With gaming, there there may not be physical symptoms. It's usually emotional symptoms. Now, there are definitely videos online of kids having tantrums and becoming physically violent. Um, not only when the games are taken away, but even when they're just losing it at the game mm-hmm. um, and not getting that same level of, of reward uh, that they're used to getting. Um, so we talk, those are kind of the core three things, cravings, tolerance, and withdrawal. There are other associated symptoms. Um, playing games, even when it's at the expense of other things in your life, like relationships, failing to fulfill major role obligations, your role as a student, your role as a parent. Um, you know, other things going by the wayside. This is one big thing that I stress. Um, if you really want to know if a, uh, a child's gaming is problematic, look at what else they used to do and ask if they're still doing that thing. Okay, they used to be on the JV soccer team and it looked like they were really going to get on the varsity soccer team. And all of a sudden they didn't. And is that when they started playing Pokemon Go? Okay, maybe the Pokemon Go actually is a problem. Um, so that those kinds of things. In total, there are 11 symptoms that we that we look for, but uh, I think it can all be summarized by um, doing it, playing when you don't want to anymore. That's really when it's when it's no longer something that you enjoy doing and you feel like you have to do. That's when you're in hot water. It's so wild hearing you talk about it because the brain. I'm not a doctor, but everything you said is it like lines up with other forms of addiction, like opiate, opiate addiction, you know, like needing more to get the same high. Like, it's just crazy that a video game can have that same effect. And we have, we talk in addiction psychiatry, you know, it's really amazing how much we've learned in the last three decades about the neurocircuitry and neurobiology of addiction. And it's an incredibly complicated and rapidly evolving field. However, we believe that all addictions, whether chemical, behavioral, are mediated through a final common pathway in the brain. And kind of the beating heart of that pathway is a part of the brain, deep in the brain, deep in the kind of lizard brain, the older part of our brain called the nucleus accumbens. And almost all addiction, whether we're talking about sex addiction, uh, compulsive shoplifting, cocaine, video games, social media, all of these things are mediated through dopaminergic pathways that start from the uh, ventral, tegme- ventral tegmental area and project to the nucleus accumbens. And that's really kind of the beating heart of any addiction in our brains. And medications that are effective in treating even some of our uh, chemical dependencies, alcohol use disorder, can be effective in very severe cases for things like internet gaming disorder. Again, because it's the same, in some ways, it's the same neurocircuitry that we're targeting when we're trying to treat this thing. That's wild. It's it's also really interesting because I'm hearing you talk about like the brain and the dopamine and all of that. And isn't it just, you know, our brain's process to keep us alive? Like you have that dopamine hit of like, oh, this is a good thing. Let's keep doing it. So it's just... It's really interesting that something can be, I guess, um, such a hook for your brain to say, like, this is good. Let's do this a thousand times. But it's just your brain's way of thinking, like, this is survival. A hundred percent. Your brain is kind of like a muscle. 
if you use it, it gets stronger. If you don't use it, you lose it. So just as the nucleus accumbens is kind of the beating heart of any addiction in our brain, we have other areas of the brain, more frontal cortical regions. One of them is called the, this is a big one, dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. And its job is to... <laughs> Say that twice and spin around. <laughs> no, thanks. Uh, it's, uh, its job is to tamp down on the nucleus accumbens. So uh, if you're living uh, your life without struggling with addiction... You know, you have impulses all day long. Um, you know, and we, we talk about ambivalence a lot in addiction psychiatry. Um, I believe that everyone is ambivalent about everything all the time. I was ambivalent about coming to work this morning, even though I love my job. Um, you know, I was ambivalent about only eating half the turkey club at lunch uh, today. Uh, I really wanted the whole one, but then I thought, oh, I have to go talk later, and I don't want to be tired for the podcast. So, um <laughs> But those, that's my dorsolateral prefrontal cortex talking and tamping down on those impulses, and I'm getting a workout when that's doing its thing. But if you're the type of person where you're playing video games 12, 14, 16 hours a day, and you're just giving in to that impulse, and at no point during the day are you allowing your dorsolateral prefrontal cortex and other areas in the, of the brain to tamp down on that, then those areas uh, aren't going to get that workout. And over time, they can even atrophy. Now we're talking decades and decades and decades. But they, there are uh, changes that you can see on functional MRIs in people who struggle with um, really the evidences in more chemical addictions, methamphetamine use disorder. But you can see structural differences in their brains over time, over decades, and it's because they're not u- using these these parts of the of the brain likely yeah it's it's an amazing connection that physically you're seeing it to like what they're experiencing yeah yeah and that's why you know a lot of uh, a lot of times when we're when we are talking about um you know things like uh, opioid use disorder someone who's been struggling with opioid use disorder for me- for many decades they're going to be very impulsive and when you meet them in the office, it's very, they're going to be loud and impulsive and they're going to want what they want. And it, you know, that's why you really need uh, additional training to uh, learn to enjoy working with, with those clients. And uh, uh, the same can be said for young people with ADHD, comorbid with internet gaming disorder. When you first meet that young client in your office, they're going to be bouncing off the walls mom or dad is going to have a heck of a time trying to, you know, rein them in even in the waiting room before they get in to see you. And, um, but luckily, what you'll see as treatment goes on, and the treatments that we do have are quite effective, you'll, you'll notice that that starts to, the parents start to get a handle on it, and the kid starts to be a little more manageable. And there's a, there's a little bit less in terms of behavioral outbursts at school. And, um, that that's another thing that's been a really big um, uh, uh, breakthrough that we've that we've learned a lot about in the last couple of years. Uh, a couple studies from Han et al. in China, um, they showed that if you take a kid with comorbid internet gaming disorder and ADHD, and you just treat the ADHD, both the ADHD and the internet gaming d- disorder gets better, and you can see that on functional brain imaging. Likewise, if you take a kid with comorbid ADHD and IGD, and you only treat the IGD, the ADHD gets better. Both get better, and then you can see that also on neuroimaging. So 
we have really effective treatments. Oftentimes it's more than one thing, but we can intervene on all of these things. And then these, these kids really do, uh, they do better. They turn it around and we're not talking about abstinence. I don't want you to, I don't want you, you can't, like mm-hmm. I'm saying, you can't chuck the phone away. If you want to play Fortnite, you're going to have access to Fortnite. If you want to play the, uh, Among Us, you're going to have access to Among Us. But you can have a healthier, more reasonable, more mindful relationship with, uh, with those things. So you answered some of my questions as I was thinking while you were talking. So it sounds like the brain can kind of repair itself from this, you know, lack of control for impulse, right? Definitely. So that's good. Yes. Number one. Yeah. And then what would be, I know you said it's kind of hard to classify, um, but if a parent is listening and they're just like, you know, my kid is playing all the time. What are things that they can do at home? Like maybe they don't they don't classify for an addiction to gaming, but they're trying to kind of get a handle on it. Sure, sure. I think the first thing to ask as concerned parents and loved ones is, is the amount of video game playing that I'm noticing actually abnormal? In many cases, um, it can be normal to go home, especially if the child is finishing their homework, doing what they need to do, going to soccer practice. If, if after all those things are done, if that child has an hour or two at the end of the day and they choose to spend that hour or two playing their Nintendo Switch and their friends are doing that as well, is, is that so bad? I, I would argue absolutely not. And I would say that video games and social media certainly have their pitfalls, but they are an absolutely necessary part of normal socialization and normal um, growing up these days. So there's only, uh, you know, you really have to ask, okay, is by my standards as someone who grew up in the eighties, is this weird? Sure. But by today's standards, is this, is this so off? Maybe I should talk to some of the other parents. Maybe I should talk to uh, the teachers. Maybe I should talk to, you know, others in the community. Maybe I should talk to my primary care doctor or my psychiatrist and try to figure out if this is actually so strange. If you ask yourself that question and the answer is yes and you say yes they're playing way too much I am concerned other things are falling by the wayside maybe they even look different maybe they're losing weight maybe they aren't taking care of themselves in terms of their personal hygiene maybe um, you know maybe they're irritable more often maybe they're just kind of explosive sometimes and no one really knows why if you're noticing those things or if you if you're concerned in that way I think the first step then is to approach the, whether it's a kid or whether it's a husband or a wife or whether it's a friend, I think the next thing to do is to approach them in a inquisitive, non-judgmental way um, and just ask more about what's going on and just get get their read on what's going on. You may gently press on this topic. And they may tell you, oh, yeah, this is a huge problem and I want to cut back, but I really can't. Like, I'm trying. Um, I even, you know, I even uh, put uh, parental controls on my Switch and, I, and I'm, I'm just overriding them and I'm still playing for hours and hours a day. So they may, people may surprise you. And, and, you know, of course, if someone says that, then you can say, well, you should really think about some professional help. Here are the resources that are available. But you also have to be prepared that you approach someone in a ju- non-judgmental way about their about their gaming, and they say, no, I don't have a problem. What are you talking about? Everyone does this. Um, 
And I, th- I think the best thing that you can do in that circumstance is just be present with the person, hang with them, never demand anything, never demand that they seek treatment, never demand that they, um, that they change because the only person that can do any changing is the patient, is the client. Um, but tell them what you see and tell them what you maybe miss about the old them. Um, you know, there's a, there's a way that you can do that in a kind and, and kind of accepting way. And there's a way that you can do that that's that's really kind of a, a, a vindictive and, and cruel way. So you have to make sure that, again, you're approaching this with a general sense of kind of acceptance mm-hmm. and and um, and kindness. I think th- that's really the first step. And then, you know, help is help is out there. Um, uh, psychiatrists um, know that this is a real issue that they need to learn to treat. I've been lucky enough to talk about this at, uh, you know, national and, and international conferences. Next week, I'm flying to the American Psychiatric Association annual meeting in San Francisco. I'm going to give a workshop about this. I've been giving workshops about this to psychiatrists for a while now, and the room is always full. So there are mental health professionals out there who know what this is and want to treat it. Um, it's, they're not always the easiest to find, but luckily, I mean, HMH is great in that, I mean, we have to be one of, if not the largest employer of mental health professionals in the state. And, you know, uh, if, if any network is prepared to help parents uh, in this regard, I really do think it's, it's us. Um, and that's one of the reasons why I decided to come here. But, uh, but uh, yeah. That's great. So you're, you're talking a little bit about resources and kind of like finding where to go. Once you find that um, psychiatrist who can help you, what does treatment look like? Really depends on the case and the age. Um, good old-fashioned talk therapy is where you start always. Mm-hmm. Um, there are psychotherapeutic modalities that have been specifically studied and validated for things like internet addiction, Dr. Wolfling, who I've had the pleasure of meeting and working with, created a variant of one of our most used therapeutic tools called cognitive behavioral therapy. He took that and he he kind of put his own spin on it and he made CBTIA, cognitive behavioral therapy for internet addiction. Internet addiction was, of course, an older term that we were using before we started really talking about okay, are you really addicted to the internet or are you addicted to social media or are you addicted mm-hmm. to video games or are you addicted to online shopping? Um, so we do have these uh, talk therapy modalities that can be extremely effective for internet gaming disorder and other technological addictions. If talk therapy alone, family therapy, other types of community interventions are not effective, then we start to uh, talk about medications. And the first thing that we do is we try to assess if there's anything else. Is there anything else that the person is dealing with? Are they self-medicating something? Because if that's the case, that's easy. If the child or the person is struggling with depression and they're really turning to games to alleviate those symptoms, we have incredible antidepressants and many other new wonderful types of therapies that are can be extremely effective for that um and so we we kind of we try to figure out if is is something else going on and then in really severe cases generally in adults um 
maybe even if there isn't something else going on, we can use, and, and there have been plenty of studies looking at, other medications, medications that we use for other things, specifically to treat internet gaming disorder. Um, sometimes we use the same stimulants that we use for ADHD. Um, sometimes we use the, some of the same antidepressants that we use for depression and anxiety. And sometimes we even use, as I mentioned before, some of those medications that were designed specifically to help people with things like alcohol use disorder. All of these medications can be effective in these types of cases, um, but really it's a, it's a hybrid approach. It's the talk therapy, it's the medications, it's family, it's, um, you know, it, it's coming up with a clear path and goals and working with someone and trying to figure out who they are. And once you're doing all of those things, I think uh, you, can, you can have good results. Do you think a lot of the time that you see patients with like a gaming disorder have some other co-occurring condition? And do you think that's why? I think that, I mean, we know that internet gaming disorder is highly comorbid with anxiety disorders. We know that internet gaming disorder is highly comorbid with ADHD. We know that all use disorders and addictions are highly comorbid with other use disorders and addictions. So yes, I would say that, and you know, and I'm, I'm an addiction psychiatrist. I'm of the mind that, you know, no one wakes up in the morning and says, you know, I would love to be a heroin addict today. Right. So pe people, people turn to substances and addictions to self-medicate mm -hmm. intolerable emotions that they're having and they, and they don't have access to other uh, means to do that. So I, I, tend to believe that in the vast majority of cases, there is something else going on. Now, are there going to be cases where it's just internet gaming disorder? Sure. I mean, we talked earlier, the prevalence may be around 3%. That's three in, that's three in 100 people um, may be dealing with this. Other studies say it might be as high as 10%, one in 10. Um, you know, other studies say it might be as low as 1%, but, you know, 3% is probably right there. Um, this is highly prevalent. So are there going to be people who just have this? Sure. But I think most of the time it's people who are self-medicating something else. Is there something that causes games to be addictive? Same with like social media. And like, I know I've heard it like into like gambling, like the flashing lights and like all of that. Like, are there properties in the games themselves that you think make them more addictive? Oh, yeah. So video games, social media, and this is not a knock on video games or social media. Um, I talk a lot about this. Oftentimes people come away thinking that I'm anti-social media and anti-video game. I am not. As, as I've said, I play to this day, I play and enjoy video games and I use social media, but it is a fact that these are, these are, uh, technologies that are designed from the ground up to be addictive. Mm -hmm. Video games in particular, um, excel at putting people in something called the flow state. The flow state is a psychological concept that is as follows. The idea is that um, humans really like being challenged, but not overwhelmed. And if you can give a human brain a challenge that it can overcome, and then you can serve up another challenge that, you, that it can overcome, and you're kind of riding that line in between being bored and being overwhelmed, that you can keep that brain doing that thing for as long as you'd like. And that's really what video games do. Video games are designed around these gameplay loops that can be very rewarding and very addictive. Um, 
you beat one level and you're immediately presented with the next. And in each of these levels, the level, the, the, uh, the challenge is escalating, mm-hmm. but in a way that is commensurate with your skill level. So you're constantly challenged, but not overwhelmed. If you, if you become overwhelmed, that's when you throw the controller down and you storm out. Game designers don't want that. And if you're bored, if it's too easy, you put the controller down and you go do something else. Game designers don't want that either. We have to remember that these are for-profit businesses. And the people who design video games are under a lot of pressure to make their video game as profitable as possible. It used to be you go to Toys R Us, you buy the game cartridge, and that's the end of your financial transaction. That's the end of your financial interaction with that piece of software. These days, you, you pay that 60 or $70, but there are ways that the developers of a game can continue that financial relationship. You know, they can offer things like in-game cosmetic items. And these things can be very appealing to young people because there's a huge pressure not only to be good at games, but to kind of be so good that you're showing off to other people. And the way that a lot of um, video game companies allow people to obtain these in-game cosmetic items are through something called microtransactions. These are little transactions that happen throughout the game that um, let people continue to spend, spend, spend. Um, Companies design games with these in mind, and they design games with certain players called whales in mind. Whales are players who will spend hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of dollars on these in-game items because the pull to obtain them can be so strong. And the companies will even patent ways to obtain these items. So for example, you know, uh, you, you do not have the opportunity to purchase the Han Solo outfit all the time. Maybe the game developer locks that outfit behind what we call a loot box, which is you pay for a random chance to obtain an item. If you want your character to look a certain way, it's very rare that you have the opportunity to actually actually buy that outfit. Instead, you buy 20 loot boxes, 40 loot boxes. So you have 20, 40, 100 chances to open these blind boxes and maybe get what you want, or maybe not. And then if you don't get what you want, you can pay more and you can keep going and going and going and going. So everything is designed uh, around keeping players in that flow state And that's when time melts away. That's when you think you've been playing a game for five minutes and it's been three hours. Happens to me all the time to this day. Um, People can go into the flow state doing anything. People can go into the flow state at work. People can go into the flow state at the gym. Um, And uh, but games excel at getting us into that flow state and keeping us there for as long as possible. Yeah, that sounds, I mean, you're ta- it sounds so powerful. I'm like, can I get the flow state to like learn how to play guitar better, you know, and then just be a mastermind at it, you sure, know? Sure, <laughs> of course. I mean, you can. Yeah. I mean, as a guitar player myself, they, uh, I, I think a lot of the apps that are, that kind of are hybrid social media tab slash learn guitar apps are doing that same thing. They're measuring your skill level. They're giving you a task that is, you know, at your skill level, okay, maybe you should start with some Oasis songs that are just some basic chords. And then you do that. And then it's going to serve you up another song. And so yeah, generally speaking, technology these days kind of is is designed around this concept. Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing. I guess we can, I mean, it's, it's a good thing, because it can grow your skills in many different areas. I'm going to have to ask you about these apps you're using, because I'm a mediocre guitar player. Still. (laughs) Oh, me too. (laughs) 
but uh-huh. no it's it's so powerful and it's it's so fascinating i could hear about how the brain works all day long um i just really appreciate you sharing and opening all this up to us my pleasure yeah so what do you predict for the future of gaming again a huge question you know, until a couple of years ago, so one of the things that I love to do, and I've been doing this for a long time, even before I, I worked this into my professional life, is that I would go to video game conventions. And that's really how I got started talking about this stuff. I would go to PAX, which is the largest video game convention in the United States. It's in Boston every year. It's an incredible time. Anyone who's listening should go and have fun. Um, I started talking about internet gaming disorder at PAX, and that's how uh, two gamers, and that's kind of how I started doing this and, and ended up writing about it. But for the longest time, all the, the buzz at PAX was all about virtual reality and augmented reality. And really from like 2016, 2017 until about 2021, 2022, I really thought that the future of games, the future of social media was going to be the metaverse, was going to be virtual reality and augmented reality. However, I have always known that virtual reality and augmented reality um, are are bad. (laughs) For one thing, um, you know, I tried on some of the earliest Oculus dev kit headsets and just felt so nauseous. So that's, Mm. you know, so there's that hurdle to get over. Um, and, And I don't think kids these days think that VR and AR is cool. I think that the I think that Facebook is decidedly not cool. I think that meta is decidedly not cool. I think that the metaverse is decidedly not cool. So I used to think that the future of video games was virtual and augmented reality. I no longer think so. I think the future of video games will continue to be um, social experiences like Among Us and Fortnite that have a low barrier to entry but are difficult to master. But what form that will take, I have no idea. There's going to be another Among Us. There's going to be another Fortnite. Just as TikTok is not going to be the last social media mm-hmm. sensation to take. You know, five years from now, TikTok will not be cool. And there will be something else. Um, and I'm pretty sure it will be an immersive social experience that will be massively available, easy to pick up, difficult to master. And it will be available on everything under the sun. It'll be available on your phone. It'll be available on your laptop on your nintendo switch on your playstation on your xbox it'll be available everywhere and i but what that what that is i have i have absolutely no idea and that's kind of exciting i used to because i used to think about the future of games think about like the metaverse and i'm like oh that sounds really lame i don't want to like go buy a prada bag in the metaverse and that's (laughs) like my experience with the metaverse and i'm kind of happy that that's kind of petered out Mm -hmm. but i don't know i don't know what comes next i have no idea it's exciting it's exciting and scary. Do you ever see the movie Wally? I love the movie Wally. <laughs> Do you see that as our future? <laughs> We're I all just not. floating around with our screens. <laughs> I I hope not. I <laughs> me too. I I mean I don't think so. I don't think it'll ever get there. I don't think so. There is hope for the future. There's hope for the there's hope for the future. There's hope for the future. Um because, you know, the fact of the matter is you can get addicted to anything. And, and kids these days, just as many kids are addicted to playing video games. I mean, so many of my patients are uh, addicted to going to the gym, with, you know, and, and obsessed with body image and obsessed mm-hmm. with 
sculpting, bodybuilding and sculpting their body to look a very specific way. Um, you can get obsessed about that. You can get obsessed about guitars. You can go down a massive guitar rabbit hole on YouTube and you can spend every waking hour, every waking minute obsessing about guitars and, and uh, you know, emulating your guitar heroes. So I think because you can be addicted to anything, I don't think we'll ever get to that Wally level where we're all, uh, you know, uh, morbidly obese and uh, <laughs> completely oblivious to what's going on around us. Yeah. Well, thank you again, Dr. Sher, for coming. I really appreciate it. Let's end, I guess, on like a, a hopeful note. What would you advise, I guess, anyone, parent, person, child, anybody who's listening, if they are concerned about any form of addiction, like what's your takeaway? Again, I would say step one is to approach the person in a non-judgmental way and, and find out more, find out what they're going through, find out if they, if they know that they're struggling. And, um, I think the next step after that is just to be present with them, be supportive in whatever way you can. Maybe that does take the form of letting them know about psychiatric resources that are available. Um, in terms of finding a mental health provider, you can, of course, use um, Hackensack Meridian's resources and you can find providers that take your insurance through our website. The help is out there. Mm -hmm. The last thing I would say, I just really want to put a fine point on this. The only person that can make that change is the client, is the patient. Um, no matter what you say, no matter what you want for them, if they don't want to change, they're not going to change. So, and, and in many ways, um, telling someone that they need help is almost the best way to ensure that they never seek it out. Mm -hmm. So I think just, um, you know, be, being present with people, being gentle about these things, um, I think that's the way that we're going to help the most, the most people. Yeah. That's great. Thank you so much. Really helpful tips. I hope anyone listening, you know, has some hope and direction now. And uh, yeah, we appreciate you coming in. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Let's go play Mario Kart. I love it. <laughs> the material provided through this podcast is intended to be used as general information only and should not replace the advice of your physician. Always consult your physician for individual care.